Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 1, if you'd join me. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Now as we move from Genesis 37, as we move into Genesis 37, we're going to see here an obvious shift. Moses the way he's documenting, the way he's telling a story, there's a transition. Now, we've already seen the narrative segue from Abraham to Isaac, then from Isaac to his son Jacob, but now Joseph will supplant his dad as the central character in the Genesis record. This phrase, this is the history of Jacob, is, is a concluding statement used by Moses to designate this transition. It's interesting in way of kind of introduction to Joseph. Interesting to consider, Joseph, a man who's not part of the Messianic line, even then, an astounding 25% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to his story. More than Adam, Noah, any of the other patriarchs, the life of Joseph comprises an astounding 13 chapters. It's amazing. And really, I see three reasons why Moses would spend so much time on Joseph. First, this fascinating tale of Joseph's life. This tale of a man sold into slavery by his brothers, taken down into Egypt, where he would spend years as a slave and then a prisoner, only to later experience this meteoric rise to power, to Pharaoh's favor. This story of Joseph is important for Moses' audience because it explains to them why and how the children of Israel find themselves living in the land of Egypt as opposed to the land given to their father Abraham. So Joseph provides for Moses a very important linchpin explaining to the children of Israel during the Exodus why we were in Egypt, why it's important for us to go back. But I see bigger reasons why Moses would spend so much time on Joseph. It's likely that Moses intentionally focused on Joseph because his life illustrates for us an aspect of God's grace that not only differed from all those that came before him, but ends up being the most relatable aspect of the grace of God to the human experience. It's true. As we've been working our way through Genesis, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter. We have seen God's grace manifest in and through people in powerful ways. But more often than not, we've seen grace manifest and yield a tangible and practical blessing. Like for example, as an act of God's grace, God appeared to Abram when he was living in Ur, calling him out and then blessing him with a land and a son a practical blessing manifesting through God's grace. The interesting thing about Joseph is that while his life is characterized by one tragedy following another, none of which, by the way, he deserves, we notice God's favor, God's grace, was upon him nonetheless. Sure, while we'll come to see God's providence behind all of Joseph's experience, 
The fact remains that God's grace specifically led Joseph into every single hardship that he faced. You see, Joseph's life illustrates an aspect of God's grace, God's amazing grace, that is very difficult to accept. An aspect of grace that's a tough pill to swallow, and it's this. Joseph suffered greatly because of God's loving favor. Like We're going to see this in the weeks to come. But it was specifically because God had a larger plan and purpose for Joseph's life that he finds himself facing so many difficult circumstances. Though Joseph would remain righteous and blameless throughout it all, the difficult reality is that Joseph's obedience, Joseph's faithfulness, ends up being the very reason his suffering not only continued, but got worse, why it increased. Friend, if you think obeying God or having godly character is going to make your life practically easier, the life of Joseph is going to completely blow up that notion. A man who has God's favor, a man who's blameless, a man who's godly, and a man who suffered greatly. As will he see exemplified in Joseph, doing the right thing can often yield a more difficult life. And yet, most amazingly, the story of Joseph also illustrates the truth that there is a divine purpose behind every trial. As we look at the life of Joseph over the weeks to come, it will become abundantly evident the sovereign hand of God was indeed working through Joseph's difficulties. Grace led him to these difficulties. He was obedient. That yielded increased difficulties. But it was all part of God's plan. In the end, Joseph suffered greatly. Why? So his family would be saved. You see, none of Joseph's experiences were accidental. Though in the moment of affliction, when it all seemed as though Joseph's present plight was nothing shy of yet another stroke of bad luck, we will see over and over again that every hardship, every misfortune, was intentionally allowed by God to accomplish his larger plan for Joseph. It's with this in mind that the story of Joseph is important, very important, because it challenges the common misconceptions as it pertains to human suffering. Buddha. Buddha claimed that suffering is the manifestation of what he referred to as karmic justice. What comes around goes around. You get what you deserve. And yet the tale of Joseph tells us that good people can still suffer. That sometimes what goes around doesn't come around. That bad people prosper and good people suffer. Darwinism, the other end of the spectrum, would go so far as to chalk up human suffering as being random. Random chance, bad luck. However, the story of Joseph presents the reality that there's a divine purpose. That nothing is random. That God is in control of all of our experiences. In a sense, the life of Joseph 
practically confirms an overarching truth concerning God that the Apostle Paul even references in Romans 8, verse 28. He says, And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The sovereign will of God over all of your experiences is biblically undeniable. Now, as we travel with Joseph, witnessing one terrible thing happen to him after another, always keep it in mind, it's not an accident, that God is allowing each thing specifically to accomplish his purposes. Your suffering, I need to say right up front, like Joseph, should not be seen as the judgment of God. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we make stupid decisions, we make stupid choices, and we reap consequences. But there are other instances that bad things happen. It's not our fault. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but it still takes place. Understand, friend, God is not punishing you. Instead, it's those things that God will use to work in you something glorious, to work through you his will, that there is meaning in all that you face. In our portrayal of the genesis of grace, it's why we're in the book of Genesis, you need to know that while God's favor always yields his blessings, there are blessings that can only manifest through suffering. Grace indeed led Joseph to the mountaintop of power and prominence, but not before the journey of grace took him into valleys of envy and hatred, rejection, abandonment, pain, slavery, false accusations, imprisonments, disappointments, doubt, depression. All was God's grace. And it's on account of these realities that lastly, I said there were three reasons. Genesis focuses on Joseph because Joseph presents for us one of the most stark portrayals of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. You see, like Joseph, Jesus was also sent by his heavenly father, sent to his brethren, brethren who hated him. Why? Because he too was favored. And what did Jesus do? He spoke the truth of God's word. We'll see Joseph do that today. Truth that he would be exalted. Like Joseph, what took place? Well, Jesus was also hated by these brethren, rejected by them, and eventually sold out for the same amount of money, 20 pieces of silver. In the end, Jesus suffered why? Disobedience? No, he suffered because of God's favor. Jesus even affirms in the Garden of Gethsemane that his place on the cross was indeed the very center of God's perfect will for his life. That is gnarly. And yet, like we'll see with Joseph, it would be through Jesus' suffering that God was working a plan of salvation. Joseph was sold out, and he suffered so that his family would be saved. Jesus was sold out and suffered so that we too might be saved. Now, before we dive into chapter 37, which we'll cover the entire chapter this morning, I want to set some narrative background, some context for what we're going to look at. Remember Jacob's family. 
and therefore Joseph's family is a complete dysfunctional disaster. Like this family that Joseph is raised in, that he grows up in, is a total train wreck. For starters, Jacob has sister wives, Leah and Rachel. He also has children with two mistresses, Zilpah and Bilhah. As we approach Genesis 37, Jacob's family is filled with four women and a whole bunch of children, 13 sons to be specific. Obviously, there's competition, there's backbiting, everyone's vying, jockeying for Jacob's attention. As a result, this family really exists in four separate clans. And they were obvious. And there was preferential treatment. Not only did Jacob had favorites as it pertained to the women, but that favoritism carried over to the children, which is weird. You would think a man like Jacob, who grew up in a family that was absolutely devastated because of blatant parental partiality. Remember, Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob as a result of their conniving One brother wants to kill the other, and he runs away for 20 years. You would think that would have stuck with Jacob, and he'd be like, I ain't doing the same thing. If you thought Jacob would take that approach, you don't know Jacob. I'm not shocked. He's repeating the same mistakes. Not only were the mistresses and their children given secondary status in the home, but Jacob prefers the two sons that were given to him by Rachel over those given to him by Leah. Specifically, he prefers Joseph and Benjamin. As a result of this family culture, partiality, favoritism, there would be natural sibling hostility right from the beginning. Dysfunction. Joseph grew up in such dysfunction. Older brothers who hated him, simply on the account that he was his father's favorite because he was the firstborn of his father's favorite wife, Rachel. But it would also seem, and you should keep it in mind, in addition to having a dysfunctional home, Joseph seems to have a moral compass that the other brothers didn't possess. While unlikely that Joseph remembered any of his time in Haran, it would have been upon his birth that that Jacob decides that it's time to leave his father-in-law Laban. In contrast, his older brothers spend their formative years surrounded by a pagan culture. As such, young Joseph would witness, as he's growing up, the effects of worldly living and lax morals manifest in the very men that he naturally admired, his big brothers. From what we've seen already, Joseph would have seen or at least heard about his oldest brother Reuben committing adultery with one of his father's mistresses. I can imagine as a young young boy, it would have done something in Joseph's heart, warned him of the dangers of sexual sin, the dangers of adultery that would play itself out in his life. He would have also been a young kid to have seen the, 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 the barbarism that occurred there in Shechem. Not only had his sister Dinah been violated, but two of his other older brothers, Simeon and Levi, slaughtered a whole town of innocent people. There is no doubt in my mind, as he grew up, that Joseph purposed what kind of man he didn't want to become. 
by watching the very men his older brothers became. It's likely, in addition to the older brothers' in, you know, indiscretions, the potential negative influence that they would have on, on a young boy, that Rachel and Jacob probably kept Joseph isolated from the larger herd. Joseph would have been given more time with his father than the others, especially when Rachel, his mother, dies, giving birth to Benjamin. What's interesting is that while there were parts of the story where spending ample time with Jacob would have not been a good thing, think about it. Joseph grew up more around Israel, the man that God was transforming him into, than he would have Jacob. See, the, the, the other boys got a whole lot of Jacob, but Joseph got a whole lot of Israel. Aside from that, from the ages of 12 to 17, Joseph would call his grandfather's house his home in Hebron. Now, the timeline that's provided in Scripture indicates that Isaac, who we've already read about his death, but that's not in a chronological order. It's more thematic. Isaac would have been, uh, there would have been 12 years after Joseph had been sold into slavery before Isaac dies. Meaning that Joseph, from the ages of 12 to 17, growing up in the household of his father and grandfather, would have hung out a lot with Isaac. We don't think of that. We don't think of the overlap, the connection that Joseph would have had with Isaac. Imagine not just hearing the stories of your father talking about wrestling with God and all the things that God did, but hearing from Isaac, your grandfather, the tales of how God had been faithful, what God had done, how God provided over and over and over again, getting firsthand accounts of things that took place within the family of Abraham. You see, Joseph had a moral compass. Now, finally before we dive into the story. We're going to get there, I promise. It should finally be noted that while Joseph came from a dysfunctional family, which we would call his nurture, and though his genetic makeup made him a natural schemer like his father Jacob, his nature, Joseph overcame them both. You see, Joseph was not bound by the destiny his Nurture or upbringing or his nature, his genetics, would have determined. It's fascinating. But Joseph is one of the few characters in the entirety of Scripture that we have no recorded instances of him ever sinning. Joseph will do nothing wrong in 13 chapters. Imagine that. He shares the genetics of Jacob he had those tendencies within him, but he resisted. And he had dysfunction all around him. You see, what Joseph does right from the beginning is he removes all of your excuses for not being obedient. Well, Zach, you don't know about my upbringing. Doesn't matter. I know about Joseph. Well, you don't know, you know, my brothers hated me. I was, does, Joseph? Well, I just got these tendencies, man. It's just genetics. It's how God made me. Well, not an excuse. Looking at Joseph, neither his nurture nor his nature provided him an excuse. Well, let's jump back into our text. Joseph, verse 2, being 17 years old, 
was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilhah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made Joseph a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than the rest, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Our story opens with a quick glimpse of this family dysfunction. This 17-year-old Joseph, he's out in the fields with his brothers feeding the flock. Though we aren't told the specifics of what went down, what transpired, it's clear his half-brothers from these mistresses Zilha and Bilha, they do something that's egregious. Very distressing. We're not told what it is. But because of, of the nature of whatever happened, Joseph, we're told, senses an obligation to bring a bad report to his father. Now, your initial reaction is probably like mine. It's to see what Joseph does here in a poor light. I mean, who likes a tattletale? No one likes a tattletale. I mean, snitches get stitches. That, that's the way that this works. It's like, what are you doing ratting on your brothers? That said, what's happening here is that Joseph is doing something I think that's very brave. This bad report he brings. Whatever happened was so egregious, Joseph sensed a responsibility to bring word to his father. You see, in a sense, Joseph... What he does is he demonstrates tenacity as well as moral courage to bring this report knowing full well that to do so would exacerbate the tensions that already existed between he and his brothers. It's sad. But we read, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. <laughs> A fact, by the way, that's not lost on the others. Why? Because not only is he playing favorites, but Jacob then demonstrates this love by making Joseph a tunic of many colors. And the original Hebrew, the idea here is that Joseph was given a tunic that reached to the extremities. Or literally, it was a long garment with sleeves. One scholar further noted that the phrase, a tunic of many colors, actually referred more to the shape of the tunic rather than the fabric or color. Sure, it's probably colorful. Some psychedelic robe, sweet. But the idea of this garment being given to Joseph, it indicates more than just a favoritism. It signified status. Even though Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, who's the first given to him by Leah, would have been the rightful heir, would have been right to receive the birthright. Because he had sinned against his father, there was now no question that the birthright had been removed from Reuben, skipping over the rest of Leah's children, now being extended to his firstborn son from Rachel. You see, being given this coat indicated that the birthright, the blessing, the favor, the status was now being given to Joseph, the youngest of all of the sons, though he's the firstborn, 
of Rachel. It's interesting. These men have no interest in submitting to a younger 17-year-old pimple-faced younger brother. We're told when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all, they hated him to the point they could not speak peaceably to him. The language that Moses is using here, it's intense. They hated him. Hate towards Joseph. It, it, it defined their attitude. They hated him. It was passion. Not being able to speak peaceably to him is how this hate was manifesting. Well, we're told in verse 5 that Joseph has a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, hear this dream, which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf rose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, for his words. Well, we're told he dreams yet another dream and tells it to his brothers. He says, look, I've dreamed another dream. This time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebukes Joseph, and says, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother, shall I, your brothers, the family, shall we come down and bow to the earth before you? And then we're told his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. First and foremost, these two dreams, pretty self-explanatory. The dreams don't provide any specifics to the how, but the what is crystal clear. At some point in the future, Joseph, these dreams predict, would be exalted to such a position of notoriety that his brothers and his father would come and bow down before him in reverence. Clearly, Joseph sharing these dreams with the family uh, didn't do much to help ease mounting tensions. After the first dream, Moses tells us they hated him even more. Then following the second, even Jacob feels he has to intervene, publicly rebuking him. You have to kind of consider, right? Was Joseph tone deaf? Was he just dense, unaware of the surroundings? How much his brothers hated him? How these words would play out? Was he being arrogant, prideful? To understand what's happening, first keep in mind, these dreams had a radical impact on Joseph. Joseph is fully convinced that God revealed to him the future. The implications of these dreams stirred his heart in powerful ways. They filled his life with meaning and purpose. As a matter of fact, these dreams made such an impact in Joseph's heart that even when his life took a turn and things got worse, these dreams would anchor his soul. No matter how bad things got, God had given him a revelation and he trusted it. In a sense, what Joseph is doing is he heard God's word and then he believes it and he goes all in. He grabs hold. He places his faith in it. 
I don't think you can blame Joseph for simply relaying the truth of a divine revelation to the very people that revelation included. In actuality, it would appear by their ultimate reaction to these dreams, the fact that his brothers envied him and his father considered the matter, that even Joseph's family sensed that there was truth in what these dreams conveyed. Sadly, this progression within the hearts of these brothers, we we see it moving from hate to envy. And man, when that happens, that proves to be a terrible tonic, a poison. Initially, they hate Joseph. Why? Favoritism. Wasn't his fault. But now, beyond the unsettling implications of these dreams, we're told these brothers don't just hate Joseph. They envy the fact that Joseph is now receiving what appears to be divine revelation, prophetic vision. Old congressional minister William M. Taylor, he wrote of envy. When envy has fully formed its purpose of cruelty, it very speedily sees and seizes an opportunity for carrying it through. The brothers of Joseph, therefore, being filled with envy towards him, soon had opportunity of working their will upon him. And they seized it with an eagerness which showed how intensely they hated him. He writes, Envy is the hatred of man for the good that is in him. And so it is the breath of that old serpent. Envy is pure devil as it is purely spiritual. Well, verse 12, His brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. This is about 50 miles north. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flocks in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So Joseph's like, Here I am, let's do it. Then he says, Go, see if it's well with your brothers, well with the flocks, bring back a report, word to me. So he sent Joseph out of the valley of Hebron, and he went toward Shechem. Now a certain man found Joseph where he was, wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. Can you tell me where they are feeding the flocks? He's probably using Apple Maps. He's gotten lost. He should have used Google. Thank you for the laughter. Appreciate it. So the man says, they've departed from here. For I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. They're on their way to Panama City Beach. That was a better joke, thanks. So Joseph went after his brothers, found them in Dothan. Dothan, the word means two cisterns. It was a place that water was kept. It's 15 miles further out from Shechem into the wilderness. Verse 18, now when Joseph's brothers saw him afar, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what we what, what will become of his dreams? But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of the hands, and he says, let's not kill him. Reuben says, shed no blood, but cast him into a pit in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him, that we might deliver him out of the hands and bring him back. So he's just d- describing his motivation. Seeing Joseph approaching their location in Dothan, an idea kind of surfaces in the collective psyche of these brothers. Hey, Dothan's pretty isolated out in the middle of nowhere. 
It kind of dawns on them. This is the perfect opportunity to commit the perfect crime. We're told they conspire to kill Joseph, to dispose of the body. Then they hatch a plot of, of the story, the backstory. We'll tell dad that Joseph was devoured by some wild beasts. Well, 10 of the 11, according to our text, appear on board. But Reuben isn't quite sold. Reuben doesn't want his younger brother to be murdered. But he realizes that there's no way he's talking the other brothers out of their deed, their plan. So Reuben decides he's going to kind of pull a fast one, an old doocy doe, a bait and switch. First, he convinces the brothers of the wisdom of not actually killing Joseph, but throwing him into a pit, thinking, well, we wouldn't shed innocent blood. Joseph would die of natural causes. It's a little bit more humane. In Reuben's mind, once they've moved on from Dothan, he can backtrack, rescue Joseph, bring him back to dear old dad safe and sound. Reuben reasons such an act of bravery may even get him back into the good graces of his father. Now, what's most disheartening about this situation, and this is what you need to note, is the deeper motivation these brothers have for killing Joseph. We're told that they said, we shall see. We're going to kill him, and then we'll see what will become of his dreams. Understand, the underlying purpose for killing Joseph was to ensure his dreams couldn't come true. That's why they're going to kill him. These brothers are actively seeking to deter what? The fulfillment of God's word. Sadly, what these men fail to realize is the simple fact, God's word never fails. God's word was going to come to pass. Those dreams were going to be fulfilled regardless of what these brothers do to try to stop it. How ironic we'll see that actively seeking to resist God's purposes, these brothers unconsciously end up helping God's purposes be fulfilled. Well, verse 23, 23, it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped him of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. They took him, they cast Joseph into a pit, for the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. What a scene. Here comes Joseph, you know, carefree, checking in on the bros. And they pounce. They strip off of him this tunic. They cast him into a pit. They beat on him, I'm sure, in their envy, fueled by their hatred. Man, they, they, they rip from him the very sign of his father's favor. Their actions here are cruel. They're merciless, loveless, vindictive. As a matter of fact, in recounting, these events later in Genesis chapter 42, these brothers provide us two more addition, additional details not included in the text. First, why all of this is happening, though the text doesn't tell us, what is Joseph doing? He's pleading for mercy. He's crying. Why? Why are you doing this? Get me out of this pit. Why are you? He's pleading just consistently. The other thing these brothers say is that why that's going on, they feel a conviction. Their conscience is pricked, but they're so filled with envy and hatred as they sit down to eat, they deny 
what's stirring within. It's a terrible scene. Imagine your brother is in this pit, crying out, and you sit down for a meal. My guess, as Joseph is weeping, these brothers probably, just speculating, take out some corned beef. They probably slap the meat between two pieces of maybe rye bread. They throw in a slice of Swiss, probably add some sauerkraut, a little Thousand Island dressing. It's a wonderful sandwich invented by their big brother, Reuben. Yeah, that was a sandwich joke. <clears throat> now, I've lost you all because you're thinking of lunch. Verse 25, so they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels. They're bearing spices, balm, myrrh. They're on their way to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother in our flesh. Nice. So his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? His plan blows up in his face. Wanted to give time. They've sold him into slavery. So, verse 31, they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of the goats, dipped the blood in the tunic, dipped the tunic into the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors. They brought it to their father and they said, hey, we found this, dad. Do you know whether this is Joseph's tunic or not? And Jacob recognized it, said, this is my son's a wild beast has devoured him. Without a doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and his daughters arose to, com to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go into the grave mourning my son. Thus his father wept. Now the Midianites... They sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an, offer of, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. Now, in closing, it should be noted that because these brothers rejected God's word, it was then only logical that they proceeded to persecute the messenger of God's word. You see, it was by their actions that they detested who Joseph was and the reality of who God's word said Joseph would become. Joseph was favored by his father. God's word said that he'd eventually be exalted to a place of prominence even above his brethren. And yet, what Joseph didn't know was that before he'd rise up, it would be necessary he first descend down into a pit of despair. Doesn't the story arc sound a bit like Jesus? God's grace 
is at work. God's favor is upon Joseph. But his circumstances, he's hated, he's envied. His brothers plot to kill him before selling him into slavery. Then he's sold again into slavery. It's not what you would have expected, is it? But God's grace is evident and is there regardless. One more reality you need to consider. Joseph was hated and therefore persecuted by immoral men because Joseph was a moral man. See, the truth of our story is that the genuine nature of Joseph's character was intolerable because it served as a contrast to the other's wickedness. As a result, Joseph had to go. Once again, William M. Taylor, he writes this. He says, they banished him to get rid of that which was disagreeable. So those who are unprincipled become intolerant of the integrity of the upright who are working at their side and do everything in their power to make them uncomfortable. Following Jesus will not make your life easier. God's grace, it always ensures blessing, but those blessings sometimes can only come through suffering. It's a truth. Persecution is a guarantee. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul promises, quote, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Know this, that having integrity, character, seeking to do the right thing at work, it might not make you liked. That your presence, light, and salt, it contrasts with the world around you. And it's that contrast that often yields one of two reactions. The light either draws people close or it will run people off. If you prefer the darkness, light, well, that's, that's not what you want. Friend, Joseph does the right thing. He's a good man. God will use it in incredible ways, but he suffers. It's a picture of us on his way to Egypt, doing the right thing, not getting ahead, but still receiving God's favor, God's hand, God's blessing. No matter what you're facing, no, it's not random. It might be tough, but it's not random. That God has a purpose. My exhortation is instead of falling into the trap of praying, God, just get me out. Maybe your prayer should be, God, help me see and get me through. For I know that you're working all things for the good. Help me see it. Help me know. And even if I don't see it, help me trust. I don't need to know why, especially when I know who. For Jesus suffered, and it was through that suffering that I was saved. So, Father, Lord, we ask.